this is the unboxing of Mike's Christmas present to me, <laughs> his his esteemed co-host. All right. Intense. Okay, it oh, it's gift wrapped. You gotta. Uh, I can't. Gift wrapping. I see. Ba -ba -ba -ba. This is a fancy bow. Knotted. It's like this blue sparkly polka dot bag with some <laughs> tissue paper in it. Oh, yeah, good. No fucking way. Oh, oh yes. Good? Hell yeah. Oh, what? sweet. Oh, sweet. That good. is awesome. Oh, man. Because you know I have, I've told you, admitted a thousand times that I haven't seen the original original. Right. Well, and you know the... So, uh... This is Godzilla. Just this so, is Godzilla, uh, the original Godzilla anyone. on Criterion. Yeah. On Criterion. Plus, the Blu-ray um, special the, edition. The nice thing about this is I do believe it includes um, both the original Japanese and Godzilla King of the and Monsters. King of the Monsters. <laughs> just in case you want to compare. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> just but in also, case you're a fucking idiot. You want to watch both Just in case you're a fucking idiot. The Big Show. Hello everyone, and welcome back to Talking During the Movie, the show where two jackoffs talk about new movies and movie news. I'm James. And I'm Mike. And this is episode 67, Mike and James on a Park Bench, where we are, will be reviewing Damien Chazelle's La La Land and talking about the mm, insignificant events that happened since we oh, reviewed yes. Rogue One. Oh yeah, no, nothing at all, Star Wars, or, or even just culturally related happens not, not no. no no incredibly significant cultural figure died no heart-wrenching tragedies just nothing nothing happened no yeah 2016 took it easy on us this week didn't it james <laughs> we'll get into that uh it's punches <laughs> the 2016 uh, i mean is the meme getting tired by now maybe but that doesn't make the sentiment any less true <laughs> I, I will. I will say my piece on that. Yeah, you will. We will get to that. Um, but it's not. We will, we're not talking ahead. the fun stuff of Star Wars, though, and that's sad because no. there's all this cool stuff about Star Wars happening. Brand we new movie. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh sorry. no. Go on. <laughs> I think we we will reflect on uh, you know some of what made Star Wars great because that's just kind of the nature of what we have to discuss but uh it will be tinged with a somber note unfortunately <clears throat> yeah carrie carrie fisher the actress who played princess leia uh has passed away at age 60 after uh her uh a massive heart attack um while she was on a plane from london to la and uh yeah it was uh really sad when they first reported the attack and you know I, I heard that she had been in the air for i think 15 minutes when the uh, i'm sorry it was 15 minutes to landing when the uh, attack first hit her mm -hmm. and uh so you know it was there was an emt on board or sorry not an emt but someone trained in cpr giving her uh you know resuscitation and, and trying to keep blood flowing and uh but I, it didn't sound good from then and then there, there were lots of conflicting reports um about whether or not she was in stable condition. I know they reported later she was, then her brother came out and said she wasn't. Then I think the next day, Debbie Reynolds came out and said she was currently stable and that she'd update uh, everyone with anything that develops. And then I didn't hear anything for a, you know, a day or two. And then 
uh, after I worked out yesterday, actually, in the morning, the news came out. Um, I got two updates simultaneously from New York Times and The Guardian that mm. uh, that she passed. And Which uh, one came first? Because that's the better subscription. Uh, Guardian, actually. Oh, by, like, there uh, you have by, it, folks. By a, by a hair. I actually <laughs> really enjoy... Have you read The Guardian? They're like... I, fucking they're really good they're pretty great yeah I, I like reading their stuff that's neither here nor there Sorry. i that was the worst part about the story was just that like you hear you hear about what happened and you you get this initial scare and then you're given this sort of like relief of oh, okay crisis averted this She's little in stable this condition little, this little glimmer of hope after just seeing a movie rebellions are built Fisher's on hope. only line was hope <laughs> or um <laughs> and uh so I, you know, kept that spark alive, forgetting what year I'm in, and uh, yeah, it, uh, yeah. I, 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 in actuality, though, I was kind of being pragmatic about it and preparing myself for that news, um, because it, it, I mean, just based on what we knew about the situation, it's not really, it wasn't really that surprising, um, just based on the situation she was in when it happened, and you know, it. It's just it's just really incredibly fucking sad. And I want to talk about, um, you know, why this is a great loss, uh, even beyond just the fact that we lost a beloved Star Wars veteran. Yeah, I was just about to say, this is much more than a loss of Princess Leia, or Leia, General Leia, if, if you, as it were, in The Force Awakens. Yeah, yeah. Um, although, don't get me wrong, I mean, I, I've heard some people totally downplaying that. I'm like, come on, that's... That's who. That's how she exists in our collective cultural. It's true. If you think about Carrie Fisher, you think of her with <coughs> the, the Princess Leia hair buns. You know, there's there's no way around it. And I mean, she's never really, you know, resented that or, or subverted it. She seems to have been pretty, you know, pretty good and active in the you know Star Wars fan community. And of course, she was in uh, Force Awakens last year. Uh, she, uh, in a sense, was in uh, Rogue One this year. Um, that is i guess a spoiler but whatever um and uh so you know that is definitely an element but um there's also carrie fisher the person uh who is the actual which is the actual what we actually lost and um the more i learned about her uh the more respect i had for uh, for this woman she um you know throughout the 70s and 80s uh had basically you know, suffered from drug and alcohol abuse. And, uh, uh, you know, the, the, she's documented this really well in, in a lot of her memoirs. She seeked help and came out, uh, you know, stronger on the other side of it. She uh, dealt with mental health issues, uh, which I'm particularly sympathetic to, um, you know, recently. And I, uh, you know, the, the fact that, uh, you know, she was actually an outspoken advocate for mental, you know, for mental health being prioritized um, and, and was kind of a, a huge inspirational figure in that area. Um, she also obviously became a uh, Willie, uh, a really respected writer and uh, it was actually a script doctor, a pretty um, prolific script doctor throughout the 1990s. Um, yeah, I mean, I actually saw an image going around of the, <laughs> the handwritten lines she did for Empire Strikes Back, you know. Oh, which, yeah changing the, the script a little i'm sure the writers love that but <laughs> i think she even had a hand a bit of tweaking the prequels although that's not necessarily a uh yeah you know, she can only do so much with, <laughs> with george's with george's brilliant vision um 
but yeah, she also worked on films like Hook and uh, I think Lethal Weapon three, and um, yeah, it, just a lot of, uh, yeah, uh, just uh, a, a lot of really prominent Hollywood films, and um, I, I've only read a bit of her um, material, her published material, um, just from what I've you know picked it up in stores and just read a, a few pages, but it's. Um, reflects who she was as a person uh at least from what i saw in interviews where she was just always so so witty and wry and uh, just a pleasure to listen to and uh really clever so uh i'm also mourning that carrie fisher i feel like uh um, and particularly after the force awakens you know she was starting to get in the, you know be more in the press again and i was really enjoying uh you know watching her in interviews and and having her be kind of a presence again in pop culture so um, yeah, it's it's really fucking sad. It, it happened. I mean, she's she was only sixty years old, so that's. Um, yeah, I've been I've been reading like uh, more more optimistic, I should say, takes on the whole uh, on her this recent tragedy on her death. Um, just as you know, the therapeutic and uh, one I thought was really funny was that she went out the way anyone would hope to do after, which is after. Uh, telling the world that she fucked Harrison Ford in his prime. <laughs> oh man! I mean, there's also the Gary um, Fisher out. <laughs> <laughs> Drop the mic. There's also um, famous quote going around. Um, not a famous quote, but like I guess not now it is. But uh, she had said that. Uh, however, she ends up going. Oh yeah. Uh, she wants the press to report that she was drowned in. Uh, was it drowned in uh, moon dust and strangled by her bra? Drowned in the moonlight. <laughs> Drowned in the moonlight and strangled by her bra. Yeah, um, <laughs> which is just which fuck. is what we should have done. <laughs> just fuck in fact, I'm gonna go. We should. We need to do some reshoots, and I'll. Oh yeah. Okay. Re- record that version. My whole, my whole intro actually depicting the truth. Yeah, yeah. Your, your intro that gets into the really deep like character of of uh, Carrie Fisher. We just yeah, need no, to remove it. that. Fuck it. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, Drowned in moonlight and uh, strangled by her bra. Gun and Moonlight Strangled by a Bra. Okay. Perfect. Right. Cool. I like it. It's punchy and it doesn't like get too muddled <laughs> with, with character. You know? Uh, also, have you seen her Twitter account? It is like. Oh my God. What in illegible. the world? Illegible. I don't know. My, my friend sent that to me. It was like, the real <laughs> loss is that is that no one tweets like she does. And then he, he sent me the Twitter account. I had never laid eyes on it before. And I'm like, what? am i looking at right now <laughs> i know it's irritating to us but actually can you imagine how much time she's like that must take a lot of time unless maybe really it doesn't good. take a lot of time it didn't take a lot of time i should say maybe she's just but... yeah she's just fluent in, in letter-based emojis well i am regardless i am impressed um <laughs> um uh, but the world goes on and more specifically the star wars series uh continues no matter who dies, they're never canceling this series. Um, and uh, the, one of the uh, when, once all the dust settled, I w- had to wonder, and everyone had to wonder, um, what does this mean for future Star Wars movies, which she was a part of, which she was supposed to be a part. Um, Star Wars Episode Eight and Star Wars Episode Nine, she was both contracted for. Uh, I did read though that her work on Star Wars Episode Eight has concluded like she had already filmed all i read that too yeah that's all filmed um it might still though affect how 
basically how her footage is edited into mm-hmm. uh, episode eight because now they're not going to have a um yeah you know, they're not going to have her for episode nine so they would either have to write her out in between films which i don't see them doing or um they could you know have a, a contract you know a contrive a death for her in episode eight or they could and this is i think a bit more morally dodgy territory but of course we just had this with <laughs> do some sort of digital trickery um i don't know how well that would go over i feel like that actually would be you know probably considered bad taste um yeah i mean we, there's so many depending ways on how depending on how they do it yeah, there's so many ways that cinema has has tackled this issue before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think most recently, what I can remember is Philip Seymour Hoffman in The Hunger Games. Yeah. Do you remember how they handled that? I, I actually don't because I didn't see the final chapter to The Hunger Games. So he he died, of course, while filming the final chapter. So they didn't get to film his final scene. And it is really just awfully handled. And, okay. and I'm not saying it's awful morally, but what happens is that... Um, Philip Seymour Hoffman's last scene was supposed to be him giving this big like speech to one of one of the character. I honestly yeah. can't remember which. I'm sorry, I'm not a Hunger Games aficionado. Mm-hmm. But instead, what you have is Woody Harrelson reading a letter supposedly from Philip Seymour Hoffman's character that is just the text of that speech he was going to give. Oh my god! Yeah, he's like he couldn't be here, uh, but here's a letter from him. Huh. Vacationing in Tahoe. It, good luck with the Emperor. Cheers. <laughs> PHS. Oh wait, PSH. 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 <laughs> Not even in the characters, they've just signed PSH. So yeah, I mean and I had to think too, like, are they going to like contrive I mean I have to think I wonder what if she was already going to die in Star Wars episode eight. Um which Right, yes. Uh, but the thing is... She was suppo- She was contracted for episode 9, but there's several ways, especially in the Star Wars it, universe, where you can hand her a, handle a character post-death. There's also a Kylo Ren-Leia relationship that they've alluded to mm-hmm. because, you know, obviously, uh, you know, he's her son just as much as, you know, Har- you know he is Harrison Ford's. Um, that fell through. So I, I, I actually thought one of the more interesting things going forward in the series was going to be um, how <laughs> basically how Kylo could re- potentially reconcile with his mother if he if he could at all um, because of what he did and I feel like either way whatever ended up happening that would be a uh, you know rife with dramatic tension um, and it's going to change that and I feel like that was probably going to be one of the major elements of this of the arc going forward so either way it's going to hugely impact that story obviously, that doesn't come near rivaling the real life tragedy and the people, you know, what the people who know her are going through. I mean, fuck her, her mother, De- Debbie Reynolds is her mother. Um, and, uh, you know, she's 84 years old. She's, you know, from Hollywood, you know, she's a golden age actress and, uh, you know, she had to, you know, this late in her life still experience a, the death of a child that really is heart wrenching. So I don't want to, you know, say, how dare you inconvenience my Star Wars by <laughs> dying? <laughs> um, but yeah, it'll just be interesting to see how that changes uh, the dynamic going forward. And because, uh, yeah, editing is still going on 
on uh, episode eight. So this will probably, if I, I would imagine this is going to affect how the film's edited. Honestly, this is the kind of thing that I could see shelving star Wars for a while. Like after this, after this sequel trilogy finishes up and you get that last anthology film, um, I, well, I could see them giving Star Wars a, a lengthy rest afterwards, well, and not just because they're worried about like saturating the market, but because of tragedies like this. Well, you know what I would give for that? Because I think that I'm starting to... I think Rogue One kind of made me think about how sick I'm going to get of Star Wars if I get a new one every single year. Well, that's what's uh, happening until the last one, so... I know... And I'm actually not a fan of that. I'd rather wait actually a few years in between installments. Not that I don't want a continuing and successful Star Wars series, because I do. But I don't... <laughs> I don't know. I feel like a lot of what got me so excited about Force Awakens was kind of felt like overkill in, in uh, Rogue One. And so I'm kind of like, you know, maybe slow down production on these. Maybe take a bit more time with them. Um and you know keep star wars special mm -hmm. and uh yeah so i don't know i don't think that would necessarily be a bad thing if it did kind of upend the assembly line of of one film a year uh you know after this after this series is done i kind of i kind of hope that they do actually I, I i think that would be a good restraint on their part yeah, I mean they're they're definitely tying in. Uh, I think anyway, uh, which which I suppose we didn't really talk about this. It seems like uh, Jin Erso is going to be. This is my big theory is going to be in the the Han Solo anthology film. Mm -hmm. I, I guess it's in in Felicity Jones's contract for at least one more Star Wars movie. Which of course, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, spoiler alert. She died at the end of Rogue One, so it can't be in the future. But there is another movie coming out that happened uh, also before the events of the New Hope, uh, of a New Hope uh, regarding Han Solo, and uh, Lando Calrissian is going to be in there. It's a young Han Solo anthology. Mm -hmm. I would bet I'd be willing to bet that Jyn Erso is in that if she did truly uh, live like a life of crime, uh, so to speak, as they, as was implied, then she probably rolled into the same circles as Han Solo. So movie about him, um, I don't see why I couldn't include him. <laughs> it, uh -huh. The only thing that the only thing that would be weird is that uh, they would just have to basically make put Felicity Jones in like young makeup. Um, because presumably she's about the same age as A New Hope Han Solo in Rogue One because it ends like right before that. So it'll be weird, but I could see it happening. Um, yeah, I uh, I think that's probably I think she probably will end up in the, the Han Solo film. Uh, I, I don't know, James, why would a why would a renegade and a smuggler romp it around the universe? around the same time ever run into each other yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> well I, I and i also i said this to you on facebook i said if rogue one is any indication she'll probably just walk by in the background <laughs> i was like i mean they saw um the guy whose uh arm obi-wan cut off in a new hope uh <clears throat> for a brief for a hot second in rogue one like <clears throat> that's just kind of what the films have been doing it's just like Blinking, you miss a cameos of classic Star Wars characters. Yeah. <laughs> so, I don't know. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. And anyways, I wanted to move on, though, to this sentiment I'm getting, I'm growing more and more tired of, um, 
which is is fuck 2016 hashtag hashtag fuck 2016 yes um it seems but 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 fuck it (laughs) look i get it i get it um and this is going to broach on political territory but in terms of just cinema right now the main measure by which we are evaluating 2016 is in celebrity deaths Right there, you got a problem. Oh, I got yeah. a problem. <laughs> um, that really shouldn't be the case. Um, I, and I think for obvious reasons, I, I can expand upon them if you want, but I think for obvious reasons we shouldn't no, measure I- a, the success or, or quality of any year by the number of celebrities who died. Secondly, yeah. this sort of thing is sad, but not unexpected. Because all of these people you think who who died recently, Carrie Fisher, George Michael, David Bowie, they all got really popular in like the 70s and 80s, mm-hmm. which means they were probably at least 20 or 30 at the time, and it's been 40 years. So this is just the fru- the fruition of the circle of life, you know. And mm-hmm. if if your if your anger, your resistance to that is is based upon a you know, unwillingness to accept the concept of death. I can relate. Believe me. Uh-huh. That being said, that's not a given year's fault. And it's weird that I'm talking about a year as a personified being. Um, and and w- where I'm going to broach on politics here is that 2016 sucks because Donald Trump was elected president. That's it. Okay? <laughs> that's why 2016 but, sucks. But Harambe... Oh God! And 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 another thing that's gonna that's gonna piss me off is that if we're gonna talk about celebrity deaths, we should talk about the ones that are actually tragic, like truly tragic, like Anton Yelkin. Uh, well, who, I, was, I, I, I was gonna say Anton Yelkin uh, is still my biggest shock death. Yeah, and and he had like his whole life ahead of him. Like Carrie Fisher, it's sad for me. You know, of course I wanted we and, always and want more of a young. person like Carrie Fisher, but she, she had contributed a great deal to cinema and we will be remembered for that. Whereas Anton Yelkin died really before he peaked, well before he he peaked in talent. And if you just you just scroll through Twitter right now, you look up hashtag fuck twenty sixteen, you you look up Gary Fisher, whatever, there's gonna be lists of people who died who died this year and talking about how awful it is. And Anton Yelkin is not is, is hardly on any of those lists and it, his is the most that's, sad. That's so we should really we shouldn't be so shocked and and just devastated by deaths that are honestly expected at some point. You know, as a as I said, a fruition of the circle of life. We we if we want to focus on celebrity deaths, we should focus on the the ones that are truly tragic. So there's oh yeah uh, a I mean, list like, of like, problems that I have with fuck 2016. I think it's completely it's one it's you're you're beating a dead horse at this point, um, and and two it's just it's a misguided sentiment. Yeah, I mean like. I think a fair number of them were too young. I think Carrie Fisher was definitely too young. She was only 60. Yeah, no, I understand. Like, my dad's almost 60. Like, that's, you know, not, you know, but, like, I don't know. Like, Leonard Cohen, who I love, uh, whom I love, is uh, was 82. Uh, Gene Wilder was 83. Uh, John Glenn was in his 90s. Uh, Fidel Castro was in his 90s, I believe. Muhammad Ali was, I Muhammad think- Ali. Relatively young, 70s. but he was also a boxer. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. Yeah, he was in his 70s. Um, so, I mean, these are not all totally unexpected. Like, Prince was unexpected, but that was drug-related. Mm-hmm. 
Bowie and Alan Rickman were a bit young as well, but eh, I mean, you know, it's uh, yeah, it, it's it really sucks, and it's you know, it's right to mourn them. Yeah, but do to yeah, do mourn them. That's healthy. But to like imply that there's some curse on 2016, if like I don't know, if the entire cast of like okay, let's put it like this: if if Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling died this year. That would be like pretty fucking surprising. God. Well, and really, we were all sad too about a few years ago, uh, last year I think. Paul Walker, you know, Paul Walker, and that and was, that was fucking year. sad. Was, you know, I might I hardly liked a single movie I saw him in, but that was really sad. Yeah, it was. That was a co- that was a couple years ago. I think twenty thirteen. Um, but uh, oh, I just I can I knew because it's Furious Seven Sirius came 7 out came last out. year, so I thought right. maybe it was last year that he died. <coughs> I think it was tw- yeah twenty thirteen. Um, yeah, it's uh, yeah, you have to kind of look at it as as what is being taken away from uh, popular culture when these people go, and unfortunately, like this shit with Anton Yel uh, Anton Yelchin happened right after I saw Green Room, which is still. Which one of I, the best movies of the year so far. Yeah, it is, and he was phenomenal in it. I think he did a great job. That actually changed how I viewed him as an actor. And I'm like, man, I'm going to follow this guy from now on, and, and I, I'm curious what film roles is going to take. And uh, so, yeah, that was really fucking sad. Um, especially because it wasn't related to, like, drugs or um, anything. It was a fucking faulty... Just a freak accident, you know? Just a freak accident. Oh. That really sucks. So yeah, um, not to steal a spotlight away from Carrie Fisher, you know that that is also exactly a tragedy. no. Right? I mean tragedies, um, but uh, but as I said, we just we shouldn't measure the quality of any given year based on celebrity deaths, <laughs> most of which were expected or at least not surprising. Not that surprising. Uh, yeah, Reddit, there was a shower thought that's like people are gonna be really pissed off in 2017 when celebrities keep dying. <laughs> right yeah yeah that is not a i don't think that's a very legit t- fuck 2016 uh reason Man, oh my god me. oh my god okay hold on this did is someone actually, did someone just die while we were talking uh, uh maybe and uh you'll you'll never fucking guess it's uh it, it, she didn't die yet but debbie reynolds uh, no fucking been, way. I'm not joking. Debbie Reynolds has been... Okay. Um, oh. Okay, okay. So here's a caveat. So de- it says Debbie Reynolds has been rushed to the hospital for possible stroke. Now, two things. One, this is obviously unconfirmed. Two, mm-hmm. this is TMZ. Um, I'm only... I'm only taking this as a potentially legitimate source... Because TMZ is also the one that broke Prince's death. So, yeah, no, they've surprisingly broke a lot of things that turned out to be true, but they're also just... They're awful. also shitty and amoral, so this doesn't mean anything um, necessarily, but I'm I, I, I'm looking for uh, evidence from other sites that this is, this is true. But yeah, apparently Debbie Reynolds has been rushed to the hospital for possible stroke. Um, so... All right, never mind. Okay. Fuck 2016. Fuck 2016. <laughs> uh, fuck everything you just said. Uh, this is this is shit. 
Shits for the birds. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, okay, well, let's move on to uh, <laughs> to La La Land. You mentioned Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling. Man, it struck me, by the way, how how very much they're becoming my generations, like Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. Um, I please don't insult our generation that much, James. <laughs> what do you mean? What are you trying to say? <laughs> I'm saying they're much better than Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. Uh, I'm well, sorry. I have never been a fan of Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. Okay, all right, all right. I, have, to I, get, I, I thought you were talking about, like, individually. I'm like, I don't even know. I don't know if either of those things are true. No, individually they're fine, but, like... I'm sorry, I never really bought them as like America's sweetheart couple. I, I yeah. never liked it. But whether or not whether or not you like it, it was it was everywhere. They were they were billed yes. as the sweetheart couple, whether or not they'd actually pulled it off and they were in, you know, a bunch of movies, it feels like. <laughs> they were. Um, um and yeah, the same thing is sort of happening with uh, uh Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone. Two very attractive people. Well, I mean yeah, that's one element of <laughs> what what makes them uh, really dynamic on screen together, but uh, that, that's, that's the only element. They're, that's that's know, it. They're just they're just they're very attractive. They're looking. just hard bodied, physically yeah, young appealing, hard bodied youths, and they stand close to each other. Therefore, chemistry. Yes, that's how it works. Okay, cool. Um, <laughs> that's I why actually, you and I work so well together. Oh, I know. We're basic. This is our La La Land. <laughs> um. It's funny because this is their third time, I believe, um, being paired together on screen, and I uh, have not seen either of the other two. Uh, what's the third one? So this is the third one. The first one was Crazy Stupid Love. Yeah, so I mean the second one. Second one was uh, Gangster Squad. Oh! <laughs> I, I don't know how much that was even a, an element in the movie. Uh. Uh, but I, I did I did hear La La Land described as um before I saw it, and this is kind of inaccurate now that I now that I hear it, but um before I saw it I heard it described as uh Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone try to fuck part three. <laughs> I think that's a reference to Patton Oswald. Oh really? Um, well, kind of, because Patton Oswald has this joke about how uh every every Jennifer Aniston movie should just be called Jennifer Aniston tries to fuck. And it's like <laughs> Jennifer Aniston and this guy are going to try to fuck. And next week, Jennifer Aniston and this guy are going to try to fuck. <laughs> Will they fuck? Probably. Um, <laughs> I mean, okay. Speaking in the context of La La Land, I'm pretty sure they fuck at some point. Yeah, no, and, and also in Crazy Stupid <laughs> Love, too. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, that aside, uh, La La Land uh, is potentially uh this year's the artist uh just based on its premise and how it's selling itself and the early oscar buzz um i think you might have tipped your hand a little there <laughs> I, well no no i'm i'm not tipping okay. my hand i'm saying this is a retro film celebrating an uh largely archaic form of cinema Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the Academy loves pretty much everything about what La La Land is trying to do. Um, so the plot is incredibly simple. It's so simple. I think I could do it. Uh, I could describe it. It's basically the, uh, parallel stories of, um, 
uh, Sebastian, played by Ryan Gosling, and uh, uh, Mia, played by Emma Stone. Uh, Emma Stone, or Mia is an aspiring actress living in LA, working at a coffee shop. Uh, she, of course, came to the city to uh, pursue her creative aspirations and, uh, you know, is struggling to really stand out to casting directors. Um, Ryan Gosling is a, an aspiring jazz pianist who uh, dreams about opening a club uh, in, is it uh, Miles Davis's old, where he used to play? If, where a famous jazz singer used to uh, perform. Uh, that is currently selling tapas and uh, what is it? Tapas and uh, S- samba, samba and tapas. Yeah, yeah there's do not <laughs> things that do not uh, you know doing two <laughs> basically half-assing two things instead of whole-assing one thing as Ron, Ron Swanson would say. Um, and uh, and you know the movies about how they meet, about how their dreams uh, you know come in between their relationship. Uh, and what path their lives take, all presented in this dazzling Technicolor musical extravaganza. Um, Boom! So now I'm actually going to tip my hand um, and think that and and say this: um, where this film blows my mind in a way that the artist never came close to doing is that instead of treating its instead of treating the Hollywood films it's referencing like a dusty museum relic. La La Land made me fully experience the love that people, basically it, made, it taught me why people love them in the first place as if I needed to be taught. I, 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 I love musicals and I love the kind of, you know, this, the traditional uh, image of like, you know, old fifties technicolor Hollywood. I I'm all over that shit. I have the same nostalgia that, uh, Damien Chazelle clearly has for it, <laughs> but it's a complete justification of why it evokes. It it doesn't just follow the path. It doesn't just mimic the gestures and the styles. It really encapsulates and embodies the allure. Basically, it's kind of like the the lantern that draws flies to it. Um, to you know, you, you you understand why this mystical city and this prestige and this glamour hypnotizes so many people to come and spend their entire lives devoting and devote their entire lives to making it in this industry, despite it being you know completely brutal and uh, you know people eating. Um, <laughs> and so to sum this up, uh, La La Land is my favorite film I've seen this year. <gasps> Gasp. <laughs> so, uh, all is the best experience I've had in a movie theater in 2016 so far. Um, all right. Um, and well, damn. <laughs> while I think that Moonlight is, um, I, I, I can like justify academically Moonlight being a better film, something that's more relevant, something that is probably more indicative of the future of cinema. Um, La La Land is. La La Land kind of dissolves um, my analytical faculties. It just kind of gets right down to my it, it gets right down to my emotional core and it makes me feel such, I, I, I don't know, it feels like such a rich, vibrant, loving movie that also does not 
pull its punches emotionally. It doesn't, um, I don't know, it, it doesn't uh, uh, sacrifice character mm-hmm. or, uh, or tragedy or drama for its exuberant dance numbers or vibrant colors. <laughs> Even though this film looks gorgeous. There's a, um, I, I'm not necessarily saying it's better shot than Moonlight, but if there's a number one competitor for it in my mind, it's La La Land. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll, I'll say this. So um, Yeah, I didn't even let you talk yet. I'm so sorry. <laughs> you asshole. No, okay, I'll say this. with. I agree with what you messaged me earlier, um, yeah. and that's that La La Land is absolutely winning it's, Best Picture. Yeah. <laughs> best picture like I, even even if i even if my take is is not as as lofty as yours or even if i had the loftiest take there's there's nothing stopping this from happening this is in so many in so many of the right ways uh, an academy movie you know just something that they that they love and honestly it's gonna they're they're gonna love it because it's it relates to their personal experience la la land is I mean, the Academy is made up of industry people, largely struggling actors and ad- actresses who, you know, uh, went through this road, and so they're going to be able to relate to it and and see, okay, yeah, this is, in my in their estimation, it's going to be the best movie of the year they're going to vote for, and it's going to win. Of course, we'll know more once the Guild Awards come out, you know, Producers mm-hmm. Guild, Directors Guild, etc. Um, but... I, I don't think that is an unsafe prediction. Um, and on the on the uh, issue of what the film is, you know, about or you know, at its core, this was it, I, it's something I'm struggling with because you know, as you said, like when you look at something like Moonlight, it's clearly a more important. Yes. Uh, quote unquote it has more important subject matter. At the same time, though, La La Land is probably the best um well it's the, it's it's the best version of a familiar narrative of yeah. the sh- struggling the well the person not even just an artist just someone who's struggling to follow their dreams where, where the constant where the constant trap of just do this lesser thing for the rest of your life is it's constantly presented you know it's mm-hmm. always there like I, I don't have to write anything i can just go get an office job you know or or even just it's something i'm trying to avoid doing now you know it's like i'm i'm trying to treat everything everything in your career like a stepping stone but you're worried and everyone's worried at some point they're just gonna you know sit down on one of those stones and never get back up right so and, you know, it's very relatable, and it, it definitely managed to, and in that, it managed to transcend the, oh, life is so hard for us Hollywood types uh, thing that uh, a lot of different movies have done, and that would have made for a, <laughs> a really bad story, a really well, unrelatable story, um, and well, because of that transcendence, I, I just, I really enjoyed it as well, um, and I am just, as I said, I'm just struggling with... Yes, it's less important subject matter, but should all of should all of the movies that we consider to be the best have to be about something important? You know, right? And that I feel like on many levels that's something we should avoid. I mean, and that's something we sort of have avoided in the past. You know, our our best film from last year was Phoenix, which isn't really about uh, you know it doesn't have any like salient subject matter. It's just it, it's a great character piece uh, set against the backdrop of a significant historical event. I, um, 
I agree with you. And uh, see, for me, it's just a matter of it, it, it's not whether it's necessarily a more realistic film or not. I, I'm totally opposed to that. Um, it's more. I look for I mean, the reason I turn to art at all is just to answer to basically a- answer the question for myself of what can it teach me about just being alive and being human like mm-hmm. anything um and like that's what is consistent about all um you know pieces of art for i think on that cri- on that criteria i think moonlight is kind of undisputably a more poignant better film it's like that is a film that's uh, so much more about um the about the experience of a life that I don't live and teaching me uh, basically what it's like to be this person. I learned a lot about, um, about what being alive is to so many people in the world from a film like Moonlight. Um, La La Land is a bit more intertextual. La La Land is in conversation with films from the past, um, with uh, the musical art form, with uh, you know, old Hollywood and Ingrid Bergman. It's with Casablanca and all the films that it, you know, it references. Um, so it's kind of, I can't, I don't know. I kind of come to the same like trepidatious praise that I, you know, get when I watch a film like Inglorious Bastards or really any Quentin Tarantino movie. Yeah. Now, where like, I'm kind of afraid of cinema turning too much in on itself um, and becoming so up its own ass that it no longer has anything to do with the real world at all. Um, but I also understand that La La Land kind of has one foot in both courts. It understands that it's doing this, and it draws a lot of attention to the fact that this is a fantasy. It's called La La Land. It's <laughs> entirely about the, I guess, ab- absurd exaggerations and excesses of Hollywood. It's about this dream that lures so many people in to just devote their entire... Yeah, like I said, they will give all of themselves over to the heat, the traffic jams, the endless meetings with casting directors that never go anywhere and will virtually degrade themselves to have a chance at living some of the glamour they see on screen. That's what the film is about and it's almost you can almost interpret it as like you know looking at you know looking at the nature of this weird you know this weird green light that attracts so many people it's almost tragic because i mean fuck the opening number of this movie which is kind of immediately i knew i would love it just from the opening sequence <laughs> but it's a traffic jam on an LA overpass and they clearly they actually shot it on location i think it's pretty obvious I, they did. I looked it up, but also I think it's pretty obvious um, from how it's shot that it's a real overpass, and mm-hmm. uh, it's this like uh, wonderful, uh, peppy, upbeat song uh, written and composed. I'm sorry, it's composed by Justin Hurwitz. The lyrics are by someone else. Um, I just want to give a shout out to him because he's worked with Damien Chazelle on all three of his films so far, and the music for all of them has been beyond approach. I think he's yeah. I think Damien Chazelle uh, likes jazz music. Oh yeah, you think? I don't. I don't know. I'm not sure. Actually, when you were describing Ryan Gosling's character, I thought you were gonna say, and Ryan Gosling plays a, a more attractive Damien Chazelle. Yeah, uh, or you know, slash Miles Teller in, in Whiplash. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yes, he's very much a, a Chazelle surrogate, but 
Um, I don't know. I don't think write what you know is a bad credo. No, like, no, God, no. I'm not. And, and, I'm not criticizing that. Oh I mean, yeah, I know. We're gonna who doesn't write this? themselves in a we're movie? Gonna the, we're gonna get into this a bit because there has been. I don't even want to call it a controversy. It was two think pieces I saw. Think pieces are, you know, hit and miss all the time. They just kind of write them about anything. But th- think pieces rarely require the first word. <laughs> yeah. Um, so. So, but. but Oh, I, I do. I want to. I want to be clear, though. I do have some some reservations about the movie as a whole uh, yeah. that stops me from giving it the lofty praise that you have thus far. Well, I, it's suffice it to say, it's in. It's definitely in contention for uh, the the top film of the year for me. So, um, but I just I, I, I'm not ready to crown it just yet. Oh, that's fine. I'm not crowning it either. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of stuff I haven't seen yet. That's true. Yeah, um, I'm, not, but, uh, I'm not ready to crown so it I, I think, I think with what I have of, seen yet, though. So, in fact, even instead of calling it my favorite, I think it's probably most fair to say that it is the best experience I've had at the movies this year so far. Um, I might, you know, that might wear away uh, after a few more weeks. You know, I, that, I have some, I have uh, some questions uh, about the first. The first scene you were talking about, the opening act. Yeah, yeah, I kind of got, I was kind of, I, I meant to kind of conclude talking about it, and I think I kind of stopped. Oh, I so. probably interrupted um, you because I'm a huge No, 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 I'm talking way too much, so yeah, go go on. I, I So, kinda get um, that first, I did not notice w- entirely, was that first number in one take? It, I okay, so I didn't, I didn't know. After I watched it, I was like, wait, entire, was that in one take? Okay. If it's not in one take, it's composed of very few long takes. But yeah, yeah, it, I, I, they I didn't... do a lot in camera. For so I have to. It felt like one take. Yeah. So there's a there's one nitpicky thing about this about this scene that I it is that does show up later on. I, I don't know if it's something with just the mixing, but I. I don't like it in a musical when I, when it's incredibly obvious that the actors on screen are lip syncing, mm-hmm. um, and honestly, I know I know that happens all the time. Of course it does, but it it seemed more distracting in the larger musical numbers in in this movie than it has in in, in other musicals, even in recent times that I that I really enjoy. And I don't, unfortunately, you know, I don't know exactly what they're doing wrong. You know, well, but, I mean, if if they're not singing. On location, well, of I course they're not. I, I, I think what, yeah, of course they're not. I think what's wrong is just that you obviously can't sync up that many people's mouths with pre-recorded music and have it be a hundred percent believable. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I had any problem with doing so much in one take with watching their mouths and seeing that oh, the words aren't quite right. You know, I think I think that yeah. was all. It just it was incredibly obvious to me that the sound was not was non-diegetic. You know, I gotcha. Yeah, okay, that's fair. I mean, while I was watching that sequence, I, I'm, I'm going to be honest, I didn't notice it, but I also wasn't really looking at their mouths. I was kind of caught up in the camera work, mm-hmm. um, uh, which yeah. you would think I would then remember for sure whether it was all one take. But <laughs> either way, I, I, was, and, I was just I was noticing how it how the camera moved, where it was focusing and, and how it would kind of like, like basically how they were choreographing this sequence with both the actors and the camera. That was I, I was just really um I love the contrast of how fun and upbeat and peppy it was with the fact that it's basically the most mundane and horrible part of life in LA, which is <laughs> yeah. a, tra- a traffic jam on a smoggy morning. And um, so, so that was my nitpicky part. The the real thing, though, and this this goes throughout the rest of the movie, mm-hmm. is that I have to say this is the probably the showiest 
cinematography I've seen since Birdman, and I don't know if that's a good thing or not. Okay, uh, see, I think it's a good thing. Um, but you're not the only one I've heard complaining about this. I know that there has been some criticism about it being – basically to Chazelle being too much of a stylist with the camera, of trying to, to um, grab attention too much. Yeah, uh, well, it's something too that I didn't really – that I didn't really feel in, in Whiplash, you know, his, his film last year. See- Okay, uh, two years ago. No, two years ago. Yeah, his film last year. I didn't really, I didn't really feel that. And this, in this one, it seemed like someone told him, "Hey, you can, you can move the camera while you're rolling." And he's like, "Holy shit, I'm gonna do this what? all the time." Uh, <laughs> I have two things to say about that. One, you're right. Whiplash. Here's the thing, though. I remember with Whiplash specifically, I was, re, I was more impressed with the direction than I thought I would be. Um, because before I'd only, I didn't know who Damien Chazelle was and all I heard was an indie film from Sundance. So I kind of expected like half-hearted handheld stuff, standard editing. Um, and for most of the, you know, for it to stand out mostly on writing and performances, that's kind of how it usually goes. So I was just blown away by the editing, um, which was, you know, cut to the music so precisely, um, and worked really well. Um, I think that was part of Chazelle's hand. I think he's got a very pronounced... Uh, I mean, he wants to reflect the music and how the film is shot and edited. Yeah, I think sure. Whiplash was more about editing because Whiplash was a tight movie. Um, it was very claustrophobic. It was, it was much more intimate. Yeah, it was one-on-one, and it was kind of... It was supposed to have a kind of a, an, a, a tension in the atmosphere. Um, La La Land is going for something very different, but I kind of felt the same sensibility at work behind both where they're trying to really personify the music and how the film is put together either with its cinematography mise-en-scene or with its editing um la la land obviously did a lot more in camera cut a bit less and but they all seem i don't know all the camera moves seem motivated to me it didn't it was either trying to embody something really big and bombastic uh or it was reflecting a character moment there's a scene later and i swear to god i noticed this the first time I was watching the film, and then I, I, saw, I saw others comment on it, but I, I swear to God, I noticed it. I believe it's, you. <laughs> it's the scene where um, uh, the dinner scene between Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling, where he makes her dinner before he has to go on tour with uh, uh, the pop group that he's joined. Yeah, and um, the scene starts off. They're both shot. It's a two shot. They're both in the frame all the time, mm-hmm. um, and then as the scene goes on and as the conversation becomes more hostile and they kind of become more at each other's throats and, and distanced the camera exclusively does uh single shots and it's not over the shoulder They're, these are never over the shoulder they're either both framed with their you know looking at each other with their face in the in the in the frame or they're uh it's single shots one and the other keeping them separate entirely and uh that kind of intensifies as they become more uh, you know, more aggressive in the scene. And I thought that was a really subtle, wise director's choice, mm-hmm. um, a directorial decision. And I don't know, I, I saw that kind of film grammar at play in most of even the flashy camera work that I saw in La La Land. Um, if it wasn't a character motivated thing like that, it would be like um, there's a musical number where, uh, you know, everyone's frozen. And then an actor jumps in, like frozen in, in motion. And then an actor jumps into a pool. The camera submerges with that with the person who jumped, reemerges, and everyone's dancing and moving around again. Which is actually a a, tr- um, a reference to uh, this 
uh, 1960s film, I Am Cuba. So it's either reflecting character moments, it's either reflecting uh, what the characters are experiencing or it's uh, evoking something in a film that, that uh, you know, it's basically commenting upon or, or a film from an era in Hollywood that the film is directly in conversation with. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I and I can understand that. My problem with it is it became at some points uh, distracting and almost like immersion breaking because really it was just like some of it was just dizzying, you know, the way I, he was constantly spinning. You're just kind of like, I don't want to watch this. And then you're reminded, of course, I'm sitting in a movie theater watching a screen, which is not what you want to do. I, so, mean, I, I mean, I guess this is where it's hard because this is so subjective. Like, because I never. I just yeah, exactly. No. You there, might have had a much different experience, and of course, I mean, other people. It, it, it affects people in different ways. Yeah, it's true. I, I, I wonder if one of the bits you have in mind was like... Honestly, the one in the pool. Oh, the one in the pool. When the camera dived in and came up, that was cool. And then it just starts spinning around, watching everyone dance around the pool, just well, in circles also, and circles and circles. And you're just well, like, God, stop. Also, with that, the excess is almost the point. I mean, if you're going to get, you know... Like, Wolf of Wall Street had similar complaints. Not with its camera work, but with just its depiction of excess in certain regards it's like well if it, if that's kind of the intention of the scene you know is that really a criticism or was it just a, like you know was it just kind of a bad taste in your mouth but it was you know supposed to kind of be overwhelming i don't know that that's kind of where personal taste comes in and what, mm-hmm. how far you think it's justified how far you don't um so fair enough um i just didn't have that problem myself um for me the biggest would be issue um, and this is not, I, I thought about it a lot because this could actually potentially derail the entire point of the movie basically. And, uh, you know, maybe to some people it does. I, I don't think so, but it, it comes to closest. It, it's, um, it, it's not the scene itself, but it's kind of what this, the idea that the scene embodies, um, at one point, John Legend, uh, has a small role in the film as a, uh, former, schoolmate of sebastian's uh who wants to who basically recruits him to play piano for his quote-unquote jazz band yeah uh, there in no universe would be considered a jazz yes. band but, yeah. um and i actually don't hate the song that they do it's a kind of a you know catchy r&b pop i kind of hate it but again we're back to I, taste <laughs> I, I i didn't actually hate it even though i was probably supposed to but here's the thing um uh he has a conversation with sebastian after the show where he basically says you know these guys that you idolize were these jazz uh artists were revolutionaries in their day they were breaking new ground how are you going to break new ground if your foot's always in the past if you're always looking back to them how are you going to break new ground Mm -hmm. um which is a really poignant message it's a strong indictment of the nostalgia wave that's definitely taken over Hollywood and of which I don't think that La La Land is exempt at all. It's definitely a part of it. Yeah. Um, and so that just kind of, and it, 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 the thing is the film never really no. an answer to that question. Well, and it's almost too, it's almost an indictment of the movie itself. That's, well, that's and, exactly and, what I'm saying. Yeah. And it's, if you, if you present that in, in your movie and then don't proceed to say, well, to, I don't know, to go one way or the other. Okay. Right. Yeah. So here's the thing. I, I think that I am just okay with that kind of, it's kind of a cop out answer, but I think I'm okay with that being 
a legitimate question that the film presents without a without an answer um while also understanding that the re here's the thing because la la land doesn't just give us the image and the style of old hollywood like i think something like what a lot of people now argue the artist did mm-hmm. um i think la la land actually embodies the exuberance and the joy and the fun uh of those movies that lured so many people in to hollywood i think that it does that successfully and that almost is that and i think that's a part of its justification in and of itself there's also another element of the film that i, I want to discuss um but I, that's one huge chunk of the film I don't think that is I think that that's almost uh, enough because it doesn't it's it's not just presenting images and hoping that that is enough to justify its existence. It's not just being intertextual with old movies and um you know hoping that because people recognize a reference to Casablanca or something uh, that that'll, you know, justify its existence. I think it actually, um, you know, it, 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 I think it dusts off a film genre that hasn't really been utilized to its potential in a long time and genuinely finds the exuberance and joy in it, even though it's modeled on an old, um, on, on, on basically an old tradition. It, makes it clear today why that uh, why that was ever even a tradition in the first place so i don't know i don't think it takes the easy way out and just just leans on symbols and literal references uh and and honestly i think i would say a similar thing about quentin tarantino movies in terms of what justifies their existence i think that that that's kind of the same thing he he re um he reappropriates a lot from old Tarantino is more B movie minded than La La Land, but they both appropriate old symbols from old movies. Yep. Um, but they do so in a way that will create a new work of art that evokes new emotions and makes you feel why those old films were meant so much to the creators in the first place. To so me, here's here's my worry about this whole okay whole thing though. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, if I if I was cutting off no, the no, final... No, no, no. That, that was the end, uh, pretty much, yeah. Uh, okay. So kind of curious what your response is. Yeah, well, my, my worry about the whole John Legend's part in this movie, and I've had this... I've had different readings of this, but this is definitely one of them, and it is supported. My worry is that John Legend is just the critic character. Like, the... Sort of... Not nearly as bad as anything but he is the mm. that sentiment that is presented in in la la land is the obstacle over which uh well the obstacle that ryan gosling needs to overcome you know he needs uh. to say no i need to reject this idea that we need to change and pervert this beloved jazz art and at the end just start my start my regular jazz club exactly the way i wanted see i i don't think that because like like we said the film never really addresses it never has well, a and that's why i'm answer. able to that's what that's why it doesn't really address it but because it doesn't address it you sort of have to extrapolate whatever meaning you can and as i said that's just that's a true. reading of it that i see okay all right i um i i, I don't know I, I think the fact that the film doesn't ever i mean I, I think the fact that it has john legend saying those words at all and the fact that it doesn't really refute him on them they're, they're totally reasonable 
words. It's it's not. It, it's a reasonable interpretation of the situation. That is what he's doing. That's kind of what all of Hollywood's doing at this point. And I think it's kind of fair to to bring that out and critique it. Um. And I, I like everyone keeps saying that John Legend. I've seen reviews that you know peg John Legend as the villain of this, or like the closest this movie has to a villain. I just don't really interpret it that way. I kind of view him as someone who obviously Sebastian has a lot of. Um, you know, history. resentment of him. Yeah, they have a history. He resents kind of what uh, John Legend embodies. But John Legend, he he does ultimately work with him. They do form a successful musical group. Again, I don't think their song's terrible. And, like, you know, he's presents a legitimate alternative to what Sebastian envisioned for himself. Um, now, I, I think that that is simply a different understanding or attitude about what art is and should do. I think that that's legitimate. And just because it clashes with Sebastian's doesn't mean that the film itself, I think, I don't think it ever tries to subvert it. I think it actually presents it as an alternating point of view. Um, one that also is incompatible with what Sebastian wants to do. And it doesn't really make a, I don't know. I don't, I don't see the film as making a hard judgment call either way. Obviously Damien Chazelle relates more to what Ryan Gosling ultimately pursues. Um, but I don't know. I, I see the portrayal of John Legend. I, I see John Legend's character's portrayal in the film as much more sympathetic than a lot of uh, other critics have. So um, I, I don't know. I mean, there, there's no scene where he is being overtly an asshole. There's and, no the, and there's no where, scene where Ryan Gosling has to like verbally shut him down or reject right, yeah. his ideas or anything I don't know. Like that. I, I thought it was a clever way to put that idea out there and present a, a competing point of view um while never you know they, they never caricaturize it they never i don't know i don't think they ever i don't think they ever really turned john legend into uh a dis, you know a villain character he never does anything no i mean it's uh, implied that he sort of like screwed him over in the beginning well before the movie started um, yeah yeah and, but again but, and, and then you see him like signing a contract and you're like oh, it's, it's gonna it's gonna screw over ryan gosling again but it never does it's it never it, does. everything it's just, everything works out fine he makes a lot of money and is eventually yeah. able to start his club Right. Um, so, yeah, I, I just don't see him as being that, I, I, you know, I, I think that the people who peg him as the villain are just doing that because our main, one of our main characters doesn't like him. Um, yeah, it's true. So. Well, I, I, I don't know that Emma Stone liked him much either. At very least, she didn't like the direction in which no, 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 Ryan she, Gosling she, was heading. That's that's true. But she actually, uh, she said that he seemed nice. She didn't mind him as a character. So I don't think that, I don't think his character is, you know. I don't think what he has to say is, you know, delegitimized by the fact that he's kind of adversarial with Ryan Gosling a bit. Um, so anyway, yeah, di difference of opinion, I guess. But I, I see where you're coming from with that. Um, I also that's, that's not even that's not necessarily my 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 take on it. I just hate that that take is there, you know, and I can't uh, easily refute enough. it. Fair enough. I did have to. Th I mean, yeah, I, you have to think about it. I, to me, like I said, I to me, I was able to come to terms with this, mm -hmm. and you know, I think that ultimately, the film is uh, if it if it never satisfyingly answers the question of how you can be revolutionary while constantly looking back, and it never really reconciles that. I think that's just another, you know, I. I I, I think that's just a point of view about art presented in the film that is just as legitimate as Ryan Gosling's 
and that one that you know as an artist you have to come to terms with and there are that there aren't necessarily easy answers for so that's again kind of a cop-out answer but that's kind of how i interpret it and that's kind of how i I, that's why i appreciate its inclusion in this movie while also acknowledging that i fucking had a great time i Mm -hmm. enjoyed the callback uh nature of the movie and just you know how it um really you know uh, modernized the classic Hollywood musical while also making you understand why people love them so much in the first place. Um, so yeah. And also uh, we can get into spoiler territory if you want or not. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if it's necessary to, to this discussion, no problem. Um, he, uh, Damien Giselle uh, knows how to end the shit out of his movies. <laughs> yes. I mean, would does. you it's not you know, would you at least agree with that? I I would. So but yeah. it, it, here's the thing, I actually I had some I had probably more I, I had more of a whiplash flashback um when Emma Stone was giving her, her final audition. Uh, oh. That to me was I, I was like, holy shit, Damien Giselle's doing it again. You know, it it was just it was it had that that very raw feeling that uh, the ending of Whiplash hit. It was just that that would just it just sort of hit you in an unexpected and powerful way. When it's a phenomenal scene. And yeah, I, it what, really is. And that's, what honestly I, might win Emma Stone and I was just about to say that you know I'm actually I'm I'm checking the uh, uh, scorecard right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, she's currently third on the scorecard, so she's definitely in contention. What's ahead um, of or who's ahead of her? Sorry, uh, Natalie Portman in Jackie and Isabel Hubert for L. Oh, okay, that's a, that's interesting. Yeah, um, yeah. So I have not seen either one of those movies. I didn't mean to sound so enthusiastic about uh, Natalie Portman. It's just uh, it's a biopic role. It's a it's a biopic role, and yeah, but I'm sure she does great. Whatever. Um, <laughs> I'll be seeing it soon. So and maybe yeah, we'll yeah. be reviewing it soon. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, possibly. Um. So yeah, I don't know. I, I think if she wins, that'll probably be the scene that that sinks it. In. Well, that's going to be the scene that they play. Just, of, course, <laughs> of course it is. Um, but that's fine. I think that and, is a legitimately great scene, and also pretty much done. I think in one take. Um. Yeah, but and you're right. You're right though that the the actual ending scene is. It, I don't think it's as like. It's, no, it's, it, it's it's not as like adrenaline field. Obviously, so well, uh, okay. it's also not quite as good. I mean, I'm, I'm not I'm not gonna actually say and, it's and you know it's really as good as Whiplash's. Whiplash's Whiplash is honestly one of my favorite film endings of all time. Well, and uh, here's the, here's the thing though. While, while you're saying that, and I could not help shake the feeling not during I was watching it, but well after that that La La that Whiplash is just the better La La Land all around. Yeah, I I did think about that too because I do think that objectively um, Whiplash is a better film. And it, it deals with a lot of the same themes with a it guy does. who really it, wants to really wants to become a great drummer and has the, to reconcile with whether or not the the route the route uh, to achieve that is too difficult for him. The inherent incompatibility of uh, of a personal life with artistic ambitions. That seems to be what uh, Damien Chazelle is really interested in, at least mm-hmm. with these two films. And, um, uh, you know, what Whiplash definitely does better than uh, La La Land is play up the work that goes into achieving success. Yes. Or, <laughs> um, and, and one of my actual least favorite things about La La Land is 
and which again you can kind of chalk up to it being a metatextual commentary on on you know the Hollywood myth of you know coming to Hollywood and making it as an actress. You can it's usually a, a woman uh, doing it in these types of stories. Um, but Emma Stone, because uh, we're getting into spoiler territory, she does eventually become a successful actress, mm-hmm. um, and. <laughs> You know, one really, of my one of the most laugh out loud moments was when he's telling her about the audition, and she's like, "I'm probably not going to go." And he's like, "What?" Yeah, I know. <laughs> <coughs> so was, she does become a successful that, actress. Well, I'm sorry. Uh, just, just a quick note: Ryan Gosling has phenomenal comic timing in this, which he, I think he does, man. And I never really took him seriously as a comedy actor before the Nice Guys. The Nice Guys, right? And and God, he's just been on top of it this year. With uh, I, I'm kind of convinced he's one of the best comedic actors out there actually actually i'd be hard to i'd be hard pressed to refute you at this moment so yeah um also wolf of wall street taught me leo was really good at physical comedy uh, <laughs> you know you find it you find it Get in, off the phone. You, you find it in unexpected places yeah um uh but yeah emma stone just you know there's a obviously she's struggling throughout the main acts one and two of the narrative and then part three comes and she er, you know, act three comes and she's uh, it flashes forward five years and she's just a successful actress now. And, um, you know, again, it doesn't like it, it didn't bother me too much because that's kind of the mythos that this film is, you know, is the reason that this film exists in the first place. But I also really liked the fact that Whiplash really emphasized how hard you have to work mm-hmm. to I mean, even get in a fucking class, let alone <laughs> right. Let alone make it huge. I mean, fuck, we don't even know how big he ultimately makes it in Whiplash. It's it's really just one killer performance in the end. It's um, true. It, it is. I mean, there's a. He probably does well for himself because there's a line of dialogue right before that that he's like, "Hey, the people in this audience, they make one phone call." You know. <laughs> right. Yeah. They're, they're right. But still, it's uh, you know. Y- it really does just come down to just being able to perform in front of the right people. And even then, it's not like we see him become a big jazz success. It's No. You know, so uh, Whiplash had a really good sense of pragmatism about this. Um, and I think that was one of the things that made it stand out so much. La La Land, again, this is intentional. So doesn't bother me as much as it would in a more straight-faced film. But yeah, it really... It, Emma Stone really is just like a... Um, brilliant artist who just needs to be discovered um you know and ryan gosling is uh you know he his his dreams aren't really as lofty he wants something i think more um more grounded (laughs) yeah more more grounded but he's also killer on the piano and seems to be able to join a successful pop group relatively easily and find insane success with them. So, well, yeah, uh, and then they use that sort of as a launch pad to to launch his cl- club, both with the right. financial, you know, the the financial means that he gained through through their uh, through the group and the notoriety. You know, if right. I hear that like so, the 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 pianist <laughs> of a of a great pop group that I love is opening up a club, I'm gonna go to that fucking club. Right, and uh, so that just it seems so success just comes to these characters a lot more easily. It just kind of falls in their laps. Um, they just have to wait there. They just have to wait long enough, basically, yeah. to be the opportunity to come along or to be discovered. And to be fair, that might not be as crazy in 
Hollywood. I mean, Hollywood's not hard jazz. It's not like it's entirely driven by skill. It's there's a whole song, um, the second song in the film about going to a party so you can meet the right person who's going to you know pro- propel you to fame and fortune. Just yeah. that the right person <laughs> you. And it's not really so you know it does kind of you know I, I understand that's an element too. Um, and La La Land in and of itself is just a more frothy, effervescent movie. It's going for something much different. Um, but I did kind of miss that from Whiplash. On the other hand, I had a very similar just, – just, again, taking academic dissections of the movie out of the equation. I had a similar um, emotional investment and experience watching La La Land, particularly its final – sequence as i did uh, to whiplash so i don't necessarily view it as like majorly inferior um and in fact i might even have had overall um a um i guess a more uh uh intoxicating experience at la la land um mm-hmm. whiplash was of course a lot more high strung intense um both i remember phenomenal. being just pumped up after after seeing I, yeah leaving actually, the theater i just like i felt like i could run five miles i do want to say also about both films um and, i like and, how i just said five miles that's a perfectly reasonable amount for someone to run <laughs> it's like i could run five miles uh, i don't know that's it's a, it's a good it's a good stretch i don't know um, i'm just saying if there's like a if there's a cross-country runner listening i've just disappointed them <laughs> I, that's true um but uh, did did you do cross country in high school? I thought you said I remember. I you did track. Okay, cool. I was I a sprinter. <laughs> I, I don't know why. I just I don't know why this isn't relevant at all. I just wanted to <laughs> uh, to to know more about you, buddy. Yeah, now um, everyone knows way too much about me. <laughs> yeah. Um. But actually, one one thing I will say about Damien Chazelle's movies, and I think this will apply to me for any uh, subsequent films he comes out with. Um, they should be viewed surprisingly because it's, it's not like this is Interstellar or anything, but they should be viewed on the biggest screen possible. Man, I would have loved uh, to see La La Land in RPX or IMAX. Maybe that's, maybe that's why it was so intoxicating to me because I did see it in IMAX. Oh, and I just, you a hole! Man, the colors just popped. They consumed me. I don't know. There was just something so uh, involving and just oh, it just I don't know. The film it 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 did what. All of my favorite movies do. It just kind of burrows directly into my, uh, to you know, my brain and my pleasure receptors, and just put them into overdrive. And I don't know. I had a fucking amazing time at La La Land. So, yes, there are definitely things to take umbrage with. There are uh, criticisms of the movie, although I think most of them the film is aware of and does smart things with, so that they don't really. Again, I've kind of justified most of them to myself, and they don't really bother me. That might just be because I love the rest of the films so much. But I, at the same time, I'm just like, you know what? Just fucking enjoy things. I don't know. I just, right. <laughs> so yeah, I. Uh, but yeah, the 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 final bit. Mia has a husband, a child, and a child, and she seems pretty happy. But these are not this is not ryan gosling and they go out on the town and they end up in a in a total reference to casablanca which i love end up walking into ryan gosling's new jazz club called seb's he's sebastian she suggested that he 
call it Sebs, even though he wanted to call it chicken on a stick. Um, and uh, which I thought was cute that he took her, you know, ended up taking her name suggestion. Anyway. Well, yeah, and it was a little bit of that, I think, compromise. I yeah. mean, not necessarily that he's compromising with what John Legend uh, presented, but he's that he's willing to say, okay, maybe I could update what I want. <laughs> it, is, it is an element I liked because, um, and this is actually something that maybe the film should have addressed a bit more because it's something that I find fascinating that um, isn't really addressed that often in movies and wasn't, I don't think, addressed in Whiplash, is the idea that even if you do have a great vision, how are you going to um, how are you going to use that to connect with people? Mm-hmm. Is it going to be, or is it going to be so much in your own head that it's not going to mean anything to anybody else? Because art's not just about making it, it's also about sharing it and, you know, having other people take part in it. Yeah, and no one wants to go to a club called Chicken on a Stick. Exactly. Um, so this is present, but it's subtext, and I, I would have loved if the film kind of took that on board more, because um, that, that that's kind of a compelling question to me about art as well. Um, so they sit down and they, um, you know, witness a performance, and then they see that uh, Emma Stone sees Ryan Gosling, and I'm I'm just calling them by the actors' names now because we know them now as cultural figures. I actually think it's. <laughs> It's and probably Mia more, and Sebastian. Yeah, it's probably more fitting to use their actual names because I think that's why Jamie and Giselle casted them. Because we <laughs> kind of understand them as a, as a sweetheart couple at this point. Mm-hmm. And uh, what uh, uh, Ryan Gosling mounts the piano and plays uh, the same bit that, yeah, the same riff that he played the first time she ever saw him. Or I guess it was actually the second time because the first time he flipped her off on the Uh, and uh it uh the film takes a detour into this seven minute what if sequence that plays out uh you know what would have happened if basically they they didn't split up if he went with emma stone instead of them going their separate ways and their lives had been if, if their lives had been different and they didn't pursue their own separate dreams so uh you know, so vehemently. Well, and it seemed like she still was she still got everything. <laughs> okay, yeah. So basically, what would happen if Ryan Gosling just compromised on everything? Exactly, and it was sort of it was this <coughs> sort of like sweet <coughs> moment, and that kind of led to a somber, sobering conclusion that it's like they could have been together, but they couldn't have both succeeded together. Right. And in this, and in reality, they chose success. Again, the film kind of has the same underlying conviction of what whiplash uh embodies which is that really to to really succeed at the arts you almost have to it's, it's almost it's be a jedi basically it's incompatible with a, a, a you know strong personal relationships um and yeah so i i don't know i i do love that there's that sense of consequence there and i also love the um i don't know i think it's a little daring to have this like you know big bold technicolor hollywood musical but end it on that kind of a note rather than like a big huge dance number or something mm-hmm. um so i don't know i found it a really effective ending kind of you know it, it it hit me pretty hard and um uh, just because they i don't know they work so well um as a classic hollywood couple um so i don't know again this 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 probably sound you know coming out of my mouth just describing it it sounds trite I would, I would say that the experience of watching it in a theater 
with these actors, with Damien Chazelle's direction is very and and Justin uh, Hurwitz's music is very very different. And yeah, no, I mean, it's sort of a separate thing that we haven't even talked about. The music is oh really God. phenomenal, and it it's is, probably going to win Best Original Song for I, one of them. For one of them, I don't know. It'll probably be City of Stars, but I have to say, yeah, City I've of listened, Stars is kind of like the thing. But I, it's kind of the thing. But I've also i've I've listened to. Um, Someone in the crowd and uh, another day of sun, probably about fifty times since I've watched this. Is City of Stars is that the same? It's not the same song though that Emma Stone sings at her audition. No, that's um uh, the ones uh, to the ones who dream or to because oh, yeah, that could also be a contender. That yeah. could that could be a contender. Um, but and, and I, it's it's more in line with what the best original song Oscar likes to say it is, which is that it represents a song that represents the movie. That's true. I do like though the tone of the songs changes, and I've heard this as a criticism too. And oh yeah, and sometimes it's like they're having a good moment, and then you're going to play something really morose. <laughs> well, <coughs> but I don't. Th- I don't think that's a problem. No, the style. I like that, that the style of the music kind of transitions because the the first two numbers are, I mean, really like a stare Rogers, or really actually more like, you know, huge singing in the rain numbers. They're like. Yeah. <laughs> big, uh, big colors, big set pieces. Uh, the beats are quick and catchy. They're really good. Like I, they're, they're just like they would not leave my head for three days after I saw the movie. Um, and I, um, so, so you have that, and then as the as it goes on, they do get more. I, I, you know, it, it it pairs it down a bit to uh, to just a, a two, like just a duet with. Gosling and Stone and like, uh, what uh, what a waste of a lovely night, which is a really <laughs> cute and playful song that I just love the hell out of, and then um, goes more somber and morose and reflective with uh, City of Stars, and uh, then you just kind of get more orchestral as their lives kind of, you know, mm-hmm. deviate from one another, and I don't know, I, I feel like there's a very, uh, I feel like it reflects really well what's going on with these characters and with the story in how its music is represented. So I don't think it's necessarily a weakness. I think it's by design. Um, no, and I also, I like how they play with City of Stars throughout the movie. It's almost like it's a yeah. song that's being written as the movie progresses, and then you finally get to see, like, the entire entire version of it, so. Right, at the end. Um, yeah, it's, it's almost like, yeah, right, it feels kind of like Ryan Gosling just riffing at his piano, trying to come up with something, and... Yeah, it's uh, yeah. I don't know. So, so I I think it's a phenomenal, um, a phenomenal soundtrack. I actually think that that's probably the. If there's one thing to me that that's unassailable, that like I won't even accept criticism of, it's probably the soundtrack. Yeah. <laughs> um. So yeah, it's uh. Yeah, I don't know. I it it's I think that I'll have to reflect on it. But I, I, the one thing I can definitively say is I, I think this is the best movie going experience I've had so far this year. Um, and I, regardless of the, you know, regardless of, of individual, you know, issues you might take with the film, I think that Damien Chazelle is one of the, I think he's one of the best new directing talents in the industry right now. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, I mean, he's, he's just come out with, I, I don't know. I cannot believe that someone so young made this fucking movie. He, he's he's had a real two really great uh, films. I mean, in, on his second and third film are both going to be nominated for best picture. 
Yeah. Which is amazing. I mean, um, you know, I, I don't know if you want to, if you want to talk about this at all. Um, just to say, now that we've seen the movie, what do you make of the criticisms that we, we referenced in our, our last episode or maybe the episode before that about La La Land being, well, which it is a movie comprised of mostly white people and how that will play into its, well, potential success at the Academy Awards. Ah, I would love to, because I have read, again, I found two think pieces really uh, addressing this idea, and both of them I kind of found bullshit, basically. (laughs) Um, They're... So yeah, the main objection isn't necessarily that it's it's a movie with white people but that one of the most prominent features in the film is jazz and that jazz Ah. is historically a and uh mostly uh african-american art form obviously not exclusively but that's where it originated yeah it's an art undertaken largely by people of color and that we're kind of experiencing it through a white character. Um, I use auteur theory to justify a lot of this kind yeah. of film analysis um, because Jamie Chazelle is a white jazz nerd, <laughs> and so he makes movies about white jazz nerds. Like, yeah, I mean, uh, I, the main objection is that the main character is not. It's th- look. This film in no way pretends that black people aren't integral to jazz. In fact, not at all. Almost no. exclusively, the people you see playing jazz are black people in this movie. The fact that we're interpreting it through Ryan Gosling's perspective, I think, is just the fact that Damien Chazelle is making this movie. Damien Chazelle is a white jazz nerd. He makes a movie where his surrogate is also a white jazz nerd. And you always have to you always have to ask the question. I mean, could there be a jazz movie made by a person of color featuring a main character who is also a person of color? Yes, that'd be awesome. Do you want right. do you want that person of color to be written and directed by a white man who doesn't have that the necessary experience? You know, right? Um, it would it would ultimately be uh, a worse character, and this person's just writing what he knows he's writing himself and you could also look at it and i'm just responding i'm not responding to you obviously responding to this this piece Uh, you could also look at it as a way that this is like damien chazelle this is a way that white people can experience an art that is largely undertaken by african americans you know it's like i'm much more interested in jazz because of the two movies that i've seen by damien chazelle you know because and maybe that's because oh i saw white people i like white people and watch a movie but um you know i i now am exposed to this art that i probably otherwise wouldn't be exposed to i you know i think if damien chazelle could write that character and you know i i then he should. There's no reason he shouldn't. But the thing is, if if he's he's the artist, if Ryan Gos, if if this character of Sebastian is what uh, is what he felt compelled to write, and I like the finished character, that's all I ultimately that's all I really care about. Yeah, I'm never um, one for policing what directors it, and writers, you know, create. Like, what if you just made him black and then kept all the same dialogue and didn't change anything? I mean, you wouldn't have really changed, ultimately, anything 
thematically or whatever about the movie it would be essentially the same movie as long as you know him you know, really the only reason it's ryan gosling is that he has killer chemistry with emma stone and i, I don't know this is it i don't know i don't even if you're going to take that argument seriously, I don't see anything malicious or like. No, he's not trying know, to like revisionist claim jazz no, not from the white person's perspective. But you want to claim that? Get mad at Back to the Future, where Marty fucking wrote Johnny Be Good for Chuck Berry, which is very very heptapod like. It is. <laughs> where did it come from? If he, um, yeah. Anyway, um, like. You know, I just I don't see that maliciousness here. Even if you were going to take it seriously, that yeah, uh, Ryan Gosling should have been a black character, or that you know they should have been a you know, uh, Ryan Gosling is not the character. Sebastian should have been a black character, or that you know we shouldn't have to have jazz explained to us through. But I don't know. That to me, that just seems like the worst of identity politics, and like uh, I, I don't know. The one uh, part of the reason why I was so adamant about um, not identifying John Legend's character as the villain is because one of the main arguments in uh, the piece I read uh, is basically that John Legend is, you know, the only black main character. I mean, there's three main characters. He's probably third build. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he's as close as the movie comes to having a villain. And he doesn't really understand what jazz is really all about and that the film kind of detests him. And I was like, no... I think that's really oversimplifying that character. I think that what he's actually doing is presenting a different way forward. He's he's challenging Ryan Gosling's uh, you know tendency to totally preserve the past and not move forward at all, um, which I think is a legitimate you know concern. I don't know. It, that uh, also sounds like it also sounds like the argument that people lo- loved at, <coughs> at Gone Girl. They're like, well, right, Rosamund like, Pike is the villain. Right, right. It's like, she yeah? Yeah? So and it's wait, like the, the woman who wrote that character was like, man, I would really like it if we would have a, a, a woman as a prominent villain in a movie. That yeah. would be cool. Yeah. I mean, So she wrote it. Exactly, right. And uh, so I feel like people, I don't know, I feel like there's always kind of disagreements about what, equality on film actually even looks like um which doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive to define that it's just like you can there are certain paths you you can take either path and people will get some people will get mad at either one you take so i'll say that i'm i'm willing to hear arguments oh i am you know against la la land in terms of its use or lack thereof of people of color uh, well depiction i should say uh, thus far, I haven't heard anything that that uh, I would cl- I would categorize as legitimate. I yeah, me neither. Um, and, and yeah, I, I don't know. I feel like, I mean, hell, if, if anything, if John Legend's character is supposed to be embodying, you know, you know, he's he's the one uh, black character in the film who actually gets to speak about jazz. Um, and he presents this different vision of it. I mean, I think it's, you know, I, I think it's fine to just have that serve as a contrast to Sebastian's point of view. Because he's, I mean, hell, he is the one who, uh, John Legend is the one in the film who's still innovating and doing new things and taking things in a new direction. Um, the same impulses that made jazz possible in the first place. So I don't know. I think that it's a huge uh, oversimplification to just say the one black speaking character 
uh, uh, the one black character in the film who actually speaks on jazz is uh, painted as the villain and is totally, you know, hypocritical to the nature of jazz and is just something for Ryan Gosling to overcome. I didn't interpret it that way. I don't really think that's a legitimate uh, strike against the film. And it, it's not like it's L.A. I, I mean, look, it, it's L.A. is not entirely populated by white people. It's two main characters are white people. But, I mean, look at most of the dance numbers or, um, you know, the, the set pieces where you have an enormously large number of extras. They're pretty diverse. I mean, they're, they're you know, there's not really, it, it's very, uh, a very heterogeneous L.A. Um, so, yeah, and, and it's, not, it's not like Damien Chazelle's pretending that people of color don't exist. Yeah, I, I also just found out that, I mean, of all this controversy, the African-American Film Critics Association named La La Land 5 on its top 10 of 2016. Okay, well, there you go. Yeah, okay, well, that's the thing. I didn't want to, like, make it sound like a full-blown controversy because I've read two think pieces on this. I know. I just, I can definitely see this blowing into a controversy, especially if La La Land should go the distance and actually win. That, okay, okay, actually, that's a different question, yeah. Because in a film where you have, oh, my God, in a year where you have Moonlight as a major contender, um, and honestly, I think we, like, Again, I had a better experience watching La La Land. I cannot deny Moonlight is far and away the more important movie. Um, if they, particularly the year after Oscar So White, if they opt for La La Land, which I'm now pretty convinced that they will do, I think there will be a pretty huge backlash over that. I, I think so, too. Even if, <coughs> and, and it's largely going to look like a really diverse <laughs> awards year, at least it sure shit better right. be. I mean, it, right. it looks like the two main contenders for supporting actor and supporting actress are both going to be people of color with Viola Davis in, in Fences and uh, M. Ali from, from Moonlight. I cannot say his first name, and I oh, apologize uh, for that. Um, Marishala? Fuck, I, yeah. I, uh, Mar- Did you look I, it up? Not right now. I did before, and now I'm kind of spacing on it too. I I think I just kept saying Mersha Ali, but I know that's not right. So, um, but yeah, okay. Um, but yeah, I and and also the fact that La La Land is just kind of furthering the you know Hollywood's navel gazing. It's it's you know puts it plants the Academy further up its own ass. Um, <laughs> I mean, regardless, I do think though genuinely that the, it transcends that narrative, but I don't think that a lot of I people do, will see but, it that way. Well, I do too, but like, it's c- kind of in the same way that Twelve Years a Slave transcends, you know, the you know Oscar Beatty movie about slavery and or race relations. Um, uh, Twelve Years a Slave is a great work of art in its own right, um, but it also does you know play to the Academy's interest in that stuff, to which I think did help it get that award. Mm-hmm. I think La La Land will do the same. thing thing i view it in a very similar way um people will still be upset about it um because it is once again hollywood patting itself on the back for making a film about hollywood and but again this will go back to the fact that you got a more diverse academy you know the you wanted it you got it and if they still pick la la land what are you gonna say right um i mean and we need to, you know, if we, in case we need to make this clear again, our view is that these are both problems, but they're fundamentally different pro- problems uh, in, in terms of Academy diversity and the diversity of who wins Academy Awards. Yes. Those are completely different. They don't even necessarily correlate to one another at all. Um, 
Not necessarily. They might, but not necessarily. And to imply that you fix one by fixing the other is kind of disrespectful to actual mm -hmm. black people, I think. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> just to, I mean, you said it best just to say that if you have more black people in the academy, which, again, you should have, uh, or really just people of color in general, um, but to imply that they are going to, in turn, vote for more people of color... It's like they will automatically vote right. for more people of color. It's, Isn't that offensive? That is kind of offensive to their own agency and taste in movies. Like, they're not... Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's like, it sets up a world where white people only vote for white films and right, black, right. you know, white films, so to speak, and black people only vote for black films and Asian people only vote, only vote for Asian films. And it's like, come on, shouldn't we need to right. get beyond this narrative? Right, exactly. Um, so, again, both problems that need to be addressed, but they are separate problems. Yes. As, as James Franco so tolerantly put it, same, same, but <laughs> different. But different. <laughs> <laughs> and thus we end our review of La La Land on a uh, quote from uh, the interview oh <laughs> uh, wonderful um so uh, yeah I don't know a great I film that transcends Asian stereotypes <laughs> oh god <laughs> uh yes um, you're so hairy love it <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh my god oh, I got my cough back Oh, good. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, we could probably just uh, end it there. We talked a lot about it and even even talked about the upcoming controversy predicted oh, here first yeah, we're on talking during the movie. You heard it here first. Damien Chazelle hates black people. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Well, it's going to be really interesting this year. Uh, there's still a lot of movies I have to see, but I feel like I've got a pretty good core uh, I've seen the majority. I have seen the majority of the movies currently represented on uh, Critics Top Ten, which feels good. Uh, it's not as much as I, oh, I saw last year, but uh, I'm gonna try to try to catch them uh, before yeah, obviously making our top ten list, which is few, probably, which is still probably a couple months away. Um, probably in February. I it's would gonna say. be in February. We always try to do it before the Academy Awards, so that's that's our goal. The episode before the Academy um, Awards, we'll do our top ten, and then we'll do our thing, awards recap. I'm gonna throw it out here. Um, and you can choose to leave it in or not, depending on if you want to go with it. Yeah. But um, I think that this year what would be fun is uh, doing basically, and we could probably do this like after our top the episode after our top ten list, like maybe the week before the Oscars or something. Um, doing sort of a, a show where we look at the bigger awards, um, like probably the supporting main actor actress screenplay uh best picture director um stuff like that um and say who in which of those in each of those major categories will win and do we think and who should win yeah yeah i love those who will and um, should win segments i think i would because it takes elbow grease but i'd love to do that it does take elbow grease but i think if maybe we you know plan for that now um we could get something halfway coherent up by the time we came, we're actually set to record it. And, yeah, I don't know. I, I just think it's fun. We don't really – we only do lists on our favorite movies of the year, but we don't really get to, you know, reflect on some of the other categories. So if we get our top tens done early enough and we have a, another week before the In Academy between, Awards, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we can uh, look into doing something like this. And also just to test how, how good our predictive powers are, how well we can read the Academy. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, because why not? So we have no, a I'm list like, of, like – 
six possible movies that we could be doing uh, next week. Whether <laughs> it's like Moonlight, oh. The Wailing, uh, sorry, not Moonlight, Moana, The Wailing, uh, Nocturnal Animals from Tom Ford, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, who knows? It could, it could get really wacky next week. Yeah, um, I mean, we're just look. We're in that time of year. It's it's probably it's catch up time. It's catch up time. It's it's. Like, I kind of kind of just had a, a, an inspired idea. <laughs> What's up? Um, so if we if you can't see anything else in theaters um, that I have also seen or can or can see, then we should do the whaling next week, and we should pair it with uh, the the documentary I told you about, Under the Sun. Ooh, okay. Do you remember? Do you remember that one? I'm. So it, it's a, I remember it's a, the name, but I don't remember what it's about. So it's a documentary um, where the filmmaker was uh, agreed with with North Korea to basically shoot <gasps> oh, what yeah. they wanted. But he shoot basically what they wanted. He was it was basically the, uh, a propaganda film that they agreed to. But he filmed the B roll of them setting up every scene and, and meticulously manipulating every detail. And he copied that on a separate memory card that he then smuggled oh, out of no. North Korea. Oh, so yes. the connection is obviously one is a horror film out of South Korea. The other is a horror film out of North Korea. <laughs> That's awesome. That's right. Um, is that also on a uh, VOD or Netflix? They're both on Netflix. Great. Yes. Okay. Um, well, if I can see nothing else, then I think next week would be a fun uh, documentary episode. Yeah, yeah, except, you know, The Wailing is not a documentary. Oh, wait. <laughs> wow. Okay, yeah. I They're both horror they're... films. <laughs> don't get me wrong. The <laughs> Wailing was a documentary in my head, even though you just told me it's a Korean horror film. Yeah. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, yes. Yeah, that would be great for next week. Yeah, so if nothing else, we're going to do that. Uh, so it could be a very uh, cool episode next week. Uh, it was a great show this week, though, and I did that backwards, but as always, thank you for listening. <laughs>